0: Today's sermon text comes from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 23. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, "Where is he?" He said, "I do not know." They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, "He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see." Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son? who you say was born blind how then does he now see his parents answered we know that this is our son and that he was born blind but how he sees we do not know nor do we know how he, nor do we know who opened his eyes ask him he is of age he will speak for himself His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Before we open up this text, let's bow our heads to King Jesus, surrender our hearts to him and ask him if he would speak and make us like him. God, we thank you that you have called us to gather in your presence, a work that you have been doing since the beginning of the earth when you created Adam and Eve to gather in the place of your presence. And Though they sinned and we suffer the consequences of that sin, you have been working to gather your people. You gathered Noah and his family into the ark. You gathered Israel near in your temple. You gathered your disciples near the Holy One, Christ, and you are gathering your people now in worship on Sunday mornings in anticipation of the great day when we will gather, when Jesus comes and makes all things new. The whole earth is filled with your gathering and we will worship him forever. Give us confidence in that story, in that promise that Christ's blood has guaranteed that future gathering. Guide us by your word to have more faith that he is working, even in our darkness. Amen. When you go through tragedy, there are two questions that haunt your soul. Why and what if? The why questions wrestle with the bigness and the goodness of God. What is the reason? What is the purpose of God in the things that I am struggling with? And the what if questions deal with the the fear of our own responsibility in it. How could this have been avoided? How could I have done it differently? Am I at fault for this? When we ask these kinds of questions, we reveal that we are all theological philosophers at heart. But most of the time, we're not very good theologians, and we bring our bad theology to answer these questions poorly, which compound the pain. So just over five years ago, my wife was hospitalized after a couple of ER visits because of a severe battle with chronic illness. So, for many months afterwards, our home became centered around just trying to keep the family together and help bring her healing. Everything else was put on hold. And it was a really difficult time in our lives, but because we lived in constant panic, frustration with God, we didn't handle this season very well. We were stuck in all of these, the spiral of all of these questions. After over a year and a half, God very mercifully restored her to health. And we determined, next time God brings suffering to us, we are going to do a lot better. We knew it would come. We didn't know how, but we knew we would lean into God and trust in that suffering. He is working, seeking to glorify him through it. And as many of you know, we did face an even far greater more difficult challenge and god used that to teach us something important that we see here in this text today god is in control of all of it in order to display his mercy and grace toward his beloved he has stretched our very limited narrow perspective opened our eyes to a much bigger picture of redemption that inspires us to embrace his trials as opportunities to be part of his new creation work. The story in John 9 is very, very personal. When we were in the hospital with our fragile little boy, Ethan, we wrote on the nurse's whiteboard for everyone who came into our room to see. We wrote this verse. It was not that this man sinned nor his parents that he was born this way, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we believed that. Doctors told us to end his life before he could take a breath. Many people reminded us of the very improbable odds of him living trying to get us to realize that we're wasting our time, we're wasting our money, building up false hopes. But as painfully improbable as this situation seemed, we were convinced that God would show off his mercy in Ethan's life. Did we believe he would be healed? Sometimes we did. We definitely believed he could be healed, But we trusted that whatever was to come, God was using it to display his glory through it, even for our joy in this difficult time. Brothers and sisters, Jesus promised difficulty in your lives, if you follow him. And when that difficulty comes, the more you understand the truths here in John chapter nine, the better you'll be able to endure it, even embrace it as God's work in your life for your joy to be part of his redemptive story. So this morning, I want to prepare your hearts to do better, to display the redemptive works of Christ in your suffering. It's not a promise that healing will come or a guarantee that it's going to be easy It's only a call to be a faithful witness in your hardship, trusting that God is at work to show off his grace. So we're going to explore this text together in two parts. It's big. We're just going to break it up into two parts. First in verses one through seven, we'll ponder the works of God in this blind man. What works is God? What work is God doing to show off his glory through our circumstances Our difficult circumstances. And then when we see that God is working, we begin to trust him. Now we can consider what our response should be. So we see in verses 8 to 23, the witness of a man. We're going to look at how this formerly blind man testified to these works of God in his life. Showing us the simplicity of faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus. So let's go back into this text. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 again and see with our eyes and prayerfully with our hearts the works of God. He says, As he, that's Jesus, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, which means sent so he went and washed and he came back seeing wow let's just back up a little bit and remember what had happened previously it's been a, a couple of weeks since we've been in the gospel of john chapters 7 and 8 are all one extended story showing how jesus fulfills this feast of tabernacles he says I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. All pointing to his fulfillment of all these things. And throughout chapter 9, we see John emphasizing this theme of light, darkness, day, night, sight, and blindness. So there's a connection, a theological connection between these chapters. Jesus claimed he was the light of the world who sees all things, even before Abraham existed. Now chapter nine is simply an illustration, a narrative illustration of these claims from Jesus. This story shows the effects of light coming into darkness of someone's eyes. So what kind of darkness are we dealing with here? Look at verse one. Jesus says, as he was leaving the temple, John says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. That is darkness. The man doesn't even have a concept of what light is. Imagine trying to explain color or shapes to someone who's never seen a thing. It doesn't make any sense. From the beginning, this ent- man's entire life has been shrouded in an abyss of deep darkness. His blindness led to shame. His community shunned him, leaving him to beg on the streets for daily bread. He's a man himself without form and void. Doesn't have purpose in this world. He can't see Jesus, but Jesus walks by and sees him. Jesus hovers over him with compassion, ready to speak light into the darkness of this man's eyes. And now as they linger over this man, ready for this moment, the disciples ask a question. Who sinned that this man was born blind? They're asking those why and what if questions. Who who did something wrong? What caused this to happen? Who's the source of this man's suffering? Where is God in all of this? These are the natural questions we ask in our suffering. We are made in God's image to reason. We try to make sense of the world around us. It's what we do. But our reasoning is a bit broken. See, these guys didn't get these ideas out of nowhere. The teachers in Israel, they took these questions way too far. And they created a system of oppression out of it. It was commonly understood at this time that suffering was the result of specific personal sin. Scripture taught there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. The prophets said that God will visit the iniquity of fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation. You remember the story of David committing adultery and murder, and his own son died because of that. So they hear these stories and they assume someone sinned, A man was born blind. Is that true though? Is that how we're supposed to understand all of these references? Jesus says, no. Verse three, he says, it was not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Jesus says, God is in complete control of this man's circumstances. The disciples ask him about the source of his suffering, and he says, I'll tell you where this came from God. God is in sovereign control over this man's genetic blindness. When he knit this man together in his mother's womb, he orchestrated the molecules of every cell of the eye and the optic nerve so that he would be born without sight. So that sometime 20, 30 years later, Jesus would come along and miraculously heal him. Sometimes sin does cause suffering that will bring harm to future generations. There are very specific personal sins that you could commit. Sex outside of marriage causes all kinds of physical, psychological, emotional, relational damage for you And for your children. Drunkenness increases your chances of doing something really stupid. That could severely cause damage. Even kill somebody's life. Today our society promotes all kinds of licentiousness and sin. That is destroying an entire nation. Destroying the future of our children. Sin causes enormous amount of suffering for Generations. The greatest example of this is Adam's sin himself. We know that Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden is the root cause of all suffering, including this man's blindness. But not all suffering can be tied directly to a personal sin. God could choose to prevent this suffering. God could overrule Satan's attempts to lead us away, like Satan did to Job. But in his sovereign will, God chooses at times to allow suffering for bigger purposes. So we need to keep in mind with this heavy thought that God allowing sin to happen does not mean that he's responsible for the sin, he didn't make anyone sin. He didn't cause anyone sin. He's not the author of the suffering. But he also, in allowing it to happen, doesn't just step aside and let someone else have sovereignty. Okay, well, that one was just completely Satan in control. No, God is in control of everything. And he has brought this man into the world blind to accomplish his righteous will. so he could display his glorious, merciful work in this man's life. So what are these works that God is going to do? Our immediate thought when we think God is stepping into this tragedy is to just heal the man of his blindness. Give my son a new ventricle in his heart, which we looked for every week. But that's not what he has in mind when he speaks of his works. in verses four and five, Jesus says some kind of confusing things about working while it's day because you don't work when it's night, but he's the light of the world and he's here. So let's work. It's kind of confusing if you're narrowly focused on just this man. Let me back up a little bit? Remember, John's theme throughout this gospel is new creation life in Christ. Each scene giving us a little glimpse of the creative power and authority Jesus has that he's bringing into this world to create a new world. So, look again at some of the things that John is writing here. In verse 1, from the beginning, this man's life was covered in darkness. This sounds to me a little bit like Genesis 1 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth, it was without form and void. Darkness. Covered the deep, but what happens after that? In verse three, God got to work and He brought light. There was night and day, defined by dark and light. This scene is an, of the blind man receiving light, is receiving sight. Is another picture of Jesus bringing about a new creation, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, speaking light and life out of His darkness. This is what he came to do. In a short while, he's not going to be present anymore. I think that means he's going to die on the cross and the whole world is going to be shrouded in darkness for a moment. But while that light is here, it is going to bring life. And so he begins by doing the creative work that he did in the beginning. Verse 4, he fashions mud and he rubs it on the man's eyes. Why would he use mud? that's kind of weird, kind of gross, spits on his eyes. Don't do this at home. He could have just touched his face and healed him or even just speak. And it would be so. But remember, this is a new creation story. Where where was Adam made from? He was made from the dust. And where did that dirt come from? It came out of the water. So he rubs the dirt on the man's eyes, tells him to go to the pool of Siloam, get in that water and come out of the water, a brand new life into the light. So the man feels his way down the hillside to the bottom of the city where the pool of Siloam sits. He gets down in there and he washes his face and he stands up and he can see I don't think he even expected it. Jesus didn't tell him, I'm going to heal your eyes. He didn't make any promises. He just commanded him to go and wash and he was healed. This is faith. It wasn't the man's obedience that healed him. It was Jesus who healed him. It was faith trusting that Jesus was powerful and he was commanding him to do something for his good, even though he didn't really understand it. His trust in Jesus' words led him to obey, which then revealed his healing. It wasn't obedience that produced the healing. It was faith in Jesus walking in obedience that he experienced his healing. It's like Abraham being called out of Ur to go to the promised land. He wasn't saved by going. He was saved in order to go. And he experienced that salvation by going to the promised land. And just the same, this man is healed underneath the mud covering his eyes, commanded to go, come out of the water, a new life into the light. The same call of our salvation, walk in obedience to the command of the light that is now alive in you. It's the work of God in all of our lives when we put our faith in Christ, especially in suffering. Suffering is quite often the journey out of the abyss into the new creation light. It's like a new birth, the birthing pangs of a new life coming out of the womb. It's painful, it's scary. And then you come into the light, alive and breathing and seeing. And the result is a faithful witness testifying to the mighty work of God So that's what happens now in the verses to follow. The man just walks everywhere he goes, a faithful testimony of the light. There's a lot to cover here in verses 8 through 23, so I'm not going to read them all again. We're going to come back to these again a bit next week and look at them from a little bit different angle, so we'll cover it again. But we're going to quickly walk through the witness of man here in verses 8 to 23. So I see... In this section, three different stories of testimony, all related. In verses 8 through 12, the man is giving testimony among his neighbors, the people that he lived near, the people who know him, who saw him every day of his life begging. Then in verses 13 to 17, the man gives testimony among the religious authorities. They don't know him. They've never spoken to him before. But his story has caught their attention, and they want to know what's going on. Finally, in verses 18 to 23, now the man's parents come in to give testimony, but in contrast to the blind man himself, they fail to stand on truth. Verse eight begins that first encounter that the man has with anybody after his healing. He just walks up. He had to feel his way down to the pool. Now he can just walk in a straight line down the middle of the road, back home, and he's waving, saying hi to everyone. And they start, did you? Is that for, huh? Really? That can't be him. Is that really him? They start debating with one another. And the whole time he's, he's saying, I'm the man. It really is me. They doubt this transformation that they're witnessing with their eyes. This is, this is the contrast of this whole story. Nobody can see anything truly except for the guy who just started seeing hours ago. Everyone else's eyes deceive them. They are in darkness. So he has to keep saying it over and over I'm the man. There isn't a whole lot he can really explain in this. Yes, I'm the guy that was blind. Now I'm not. There's my testimony. And they ask him for clarity in verse 10. Well, then how were your eyes opened? Uh, A guy named Jesus, he says in verse 11. He put mud on my eyes and told me to go wash in the pool. And so I did. And now I see. And you see this pattern repeated over and over. Mud, water, sight. Mud, water, sight. That's his entire testimony. He's consistent. It's not a complicated testimony. He's, He's not an educated man. Nobody would have wasted time taking this guy to school. He's cursed. He doesn't even deserve to learn. He doesn't really know what happened. He just knows a guy who heard, he heard his name is Jesus told him to wash the mud off, and now he can see. So they ask him in verse 12, well, where is this Jesus? He says, I don't know. How could he know? If you think about it, he still has not seen Jesus. Jesus, he walked away from Jesus to get his healing. So, for all he knows, Jesus could be standing right behind him and he wouldn't have a clue that that's the guy that healed him because he's never seen him. Faith here, we see, doesn't mean you have all the answers. Being a a faithful witness doesn't mean you can defend every single spiritual truth. He simply states what he knows I'm a man who was born blind. But I'm not blind because a man named Jesus put mud on my eyes, told me to wash it off. Now I can see. Sure, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But that's what happened. Clearly, something big is happening in this situation. Because in verse 13, the man's neighbors bring him along to the Pharisees. I I was reading this going, why did they do that? Don't they all hate the Pharisees? Well, it's a complicated situation. In the Old Testament, if someone received a miraculous healing, they were to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice and give testimony to the priests because clearly God was at work doing something. He was up to something, and they were the ones who could help us figure out what is God telling us. So here they are, Pharisees, help us out, help us understand. So the Pharisees ask him in verse 15, And he gives the same answer as before. Mud, water, sight. His testimony is unchanging. He's not duplicitous. He's not fishing for affirmation, adjusting his story for different audiences in order to buy some credibility to make it more believable. Mud, water, sight. Sounds ridiculous, but... He's not here to impress these guys. He's never seen them before in his life. They've never talked to him. He doesn't know what their voices sound like. He doesn't know what all their big religious garb is for. He's not impressed by their appearance. They never talked to him because he was cursed, according to them. So they don't intimidate him at all. He doesn't need their validation. The greatest thing in the world just happened to him. Mud, water, sight. And now he can see colors and shapes. He sees blue sky and so many different colors in the market and square and triangle buildings and a golden orb in the sky. He sees birds flying around. He doesn't need their validation. So what do the Pharisees think of this, this situation? What is God trying to tell Israel through this miraculous sign? Well, apparently nothing. They think it's a scam because Jesus did it on the Sabbath. Again, Jesus is showing healing on the Sabbath that he's the God who has come to create a new world. But they can't see the signs. They can't connect the dots. Though their eyes work, they can't see truth. They're really stuck between a theological rock and a philosophical hard place. The Pharisees have taught that this man was born blind because of sin, and he is being justly punished. And then Jesus comes along and heals him as though he's got the authority to forgive sin and heal somebody. Well, actually, he does. But he healed on the Sabbath, and that's proof, according to their system, that he's a sinner, so you can't have A sinner doing the works of God, because we know that only God can bring sight to the blind. The promises throughout the Old Testament that God's Messiah was going to bring sight to the blind. So, how can this sinner be doing God's work? Well, we know the answer is Jesus is no sinner, He is God. But we so often cling so tightly to our broken ability to reason and make sense of this world. We live in constant cognitive dissonance. We are walking contradictions, believing all kinds of false ideas, causing us to miss glorious, obvious, life-giving truth right in front of our faces. This is the lesson of this entire scene If you try to make yourself, your own mind, your own experience, the main character of the story, it will so narrow your vision that you'll miss out on truth and the glorious tale being told. So these wise Pharisees ironically ask this unlearned man how he thinks it all fits together. They're stuck. He says, Well, Jesus is a prophet. This man has stepped out of his own story, out of being the main character of his own story, into being a secondary character, stepping into God's bigger story. Certainly, we know Jesus is more, much more than just a prophet. But at this time, this man is simply confessing all that he is able, all that he knows. The Pharisees had said in verse 16, we know this man is not from God. But then he, by declaring him to be a prophet, is saying, actually, I think he is from God. For only God could heal a man born blind. It's an obvious truth that those who've been able to see their entire lives cannot see. Now, to drive home this ongoing contradiction of blindness, seeing blindness... John presents us with a final contrast. The Pharisees march in this man's parents. The only possible solution to this conundrum in their mind is that the man is lying about being blind from birth. It's a subtle admission of many truths. They know only God could heal. They know that if Jesus is the one that healed, he's claiming to be from God So they need to figure out a way to shut this down. They can't stomach admitting that Jesus is from God. So they ask his parents and they say, we know that this is our son and he was born blind, but we don't know how he was healed and we don't know who healed him. The cadence of we know, we don't know, nor do we know shows that his parents, too, are only seeing with their physical eyes. They are still spiritually blind. And they deflect the questions back to their son. Ironically, it's like they're saying, we can't see, but he can. Their blindness is because they fear the Pharisees. The man didn't even know he should be afraid of the Pharisees. He's never been allowed in the synagogue anyway because he was cursed. So what did he have to lose by just being a faithful witness to Jesus? These parents, though, they wanted respect. They wanted the relationships. They wanted the honor that came with it. And holding on to that cost them the miracle, the joy of the miracle of their own son receiving healing. The neighbors and the Pharisees and the parents all show us the blindness, the darkness we live in when we cling to our own limited perspective, our own little worlds, make much of ourselves in this story. When we're the main character of our own lives, it only draws us further into blindness. So in the same way that this man was healed, it will take a miracle to heal us of our Blindness. And then our whole lives can be a display of the redemptive work of Christ, even in our suffering. So, what does this all mean for us? Even in our sufferings, suffering is a testing furnace. God deliberately brings suffering into people's lives in order to prove who are His and who are not. The same type of suffering can lead someone far away from God or lead others deeper into a bright life with him. This text is first a warning to those who don't believe. It's a warning not to trust your own eyes. You are born blind and in your blindness you'll regularly try to bend reality to fit into your own preconceived worldview. Lying about what you are able to see. Until you surrender to Christ, repent and put your faith in him, you'll be living a living contradiction. But if you trust in him, the mud will fall from your eyes. You'll be washed in his righteousness and you will see like you have never seen before. The whole world becomes brighter. Jesus is the light of the world who has come into our darkness. He took the darkness upon himself on the cross and he buries it, kills that old creation, putting it in the grave. And he came out of the tomb to offer a brand new life to all who trust him, giving sight, spiritual sight to those who believe. So you can walk in new creation life. Put your trust in him by burying your old life in the dirt and coming out of the water to walk in new life with the light of the world. And then when you're in him and suffering does come to you, you don't need to examine your suffering with these despairing questions, doubting the goodness of God, wondering, is he punishing me? Instead, you receive the suffering you can examine with confidence that you are forgiven and his power is at work in you at this moment. If you are suffering, you should definitely take a moment to consider, maybe I am at fault for this. There are times when our sin hurts other people. And if that's true, then you should repent, apologize to the people you've hurt, do what you can to make it right, to restore them. And perhaps through that reconciliation, your burden will be lifted. But if it's not because of your sin, then we should trust that God is still in control of it all. Not to punish you, but to display his glorious mercy in your life. Stop worrying that you did something wrong. Stop worrying, superstitiously avoiding all these other things that you think maybe caused it. God is there in your suffering. He says in Psalm 139, "Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, down in the dirt, you are there." He is in our darkness, in control of our darkness. Go deep into God in your suffering. He is there to show off his mercy. And while you find his comforts there, you can ask, you can open your heart and say, how do you want me to grow in this? What do you want me to learn, God, through this trial? Paul learned from his sufferings where he almost died, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9, not to trust his flesh, but trust God who is going to raise him from the dead. He learned in 2 Corinthians 12 that there is so much more joy to be had in embracing weakness because Christ's power shows off more in our weakness. Suffering reveals how small we think, how narrow our vision is. God uses it to expand our vision beyond ourselves to show that his purposes are way bigger than what we can see in our limited perspectives. It's a passageway into a glorious world filled with light. I wonder how many of you thought it doesn't seem very fair that God made this man blind. Blind just so he could heal him. But that reveals a mindset like the Pharisees that are so narrowly focused on one little piece of history. This man, his decades of blindness were nothing compared to a glorious eternity. Think about how many people in history have received comfort and salvation because this man's story is in scripture. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 4, that him going through suffering now allows him to bring God's comfort to others in suffering. That's this man's story too. I have no doubt he is in heaven today praising God for making him blind so that he could personally experience the glory of God's mercy the power of his work in his life, and so that his story could be a comfort and salvation for untold millions. Though my trials have been extremely painful, I can honestly say I'm grateful for them because they have brought me closer to Jesus. They have helped me to experience the sufferings Christ went through for me They have brought the words of Scripture to life for me. They've boosted my confidence and eagerness for the resurrection, and they have been used to bring many others closer to Christ. And I know that the day I step into eternity will undoubtedly be sweeter because of them. So embrace your sufferings as part of God's redemptive work. And through them, be a a witness, a faithful witness to him. When your trials come, expect God's glorious grace to shine in unexpected ways. Maybe not through the healing you want, the solution you pray for, but he will be merciful in them. And one day he promises it will be healed in the resurrection to come. When you are raised to a new life in the glorious light of a new creation, until then, just like the blind man's neighbors and the Pharisees and even his parents, people are going to attack you and doubt you and throw you under the bus. Hopefully it's not your own parents. Don't fear what they think. Don't seek their approval. Your validation is that you could see Christ now. And you experience life with him among his people. Be satisfied in that new life he's given you, joining him in his new creation work. Get out there and find people who are still in darkness. If you come across someone who's suffering, don't assume their sin is caused by their own suffering, their trouble is caused by their own sin. Even if it was, that might be true, even if it was, don't waste your time trying to figure out the cause. Instead, ask how might God use you to bring light into their darkness? See them like Jesus did, as a person stuck in blindness. And he sent you from his throne of light, filling you with his spirit. He sent you to go continue the work while the light is still here. Because the end is coming soon. And we won't have opportunities to bring others out of the darkness anymore. Let us work while it is yet day to bring this new creation light into the darkness of those around us displaying the redemptive works of Christ in this suffering world. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in this word. That you are not standing aloof, you are not far off, but you are near in our trials. Whether we have financial troubles, health troubles, relational difficulty parenting troubles, marriage challenges, God, we lay them all before you and we trust, God, you are at work in them. Would you use them to transform us, to bring us out of the darkness and further into the light and use our experience to be a witness to others, to a witness to our children and to our neighbors. And maybe, maybe we would have the opportunity, God, to stand before governors and kings and proclaim, I once was blind. But now I see because Jesus put me to death in the dirt and raised me to new life by his death and resurrection. In that promise we trust. Amen.